Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project... Five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails remastered the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the War of 1812, which originally aired as one episode on the 16th of September, 2012. Welcome back to the second part of our look at the War of 1812. Last time we clued you guys in on the state of affairs in Britain, France and America. We set the scene and explained how the Anglo-American relationship developed in the aftermath of independence. Though it started off relatively well, strains on the relationship appeared over the issues of trade and impressment. While Britain was doing everything to starve France, this involved cutting France off from markets abroad, and the owners of those markets, like the Americans, weren't too pleased at this. A level of arrogance and heavy-handedness didn't help matters, with the result that President Thomas Jefferson was facing a multitude of calls for military action by 1810 after years of resisting, as he also sought to implement his own regulations, which only ended up harming the United States' balance sheet. Let's see how he continued to fare. I will now take you to 1810. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots, 
and tyrants. Thomas Jefferson Jefferson had hoped that by cutting Britain and France off from American goods, both would see how badly they needed them, and thus they'd treat with America on more favourable terms and with financial guarantees. Unfortunately for Jefferson, though, Congress noted instead the negative effect that the act was having on American commerce and how well the black market was thriving, and the act was allowed to quietly lapse into irrelevance. But Congress then made another pledge, as Lucia Ratma in his book, The War of 1812, noted, Finally in 1810, Congress removed all restrictions to trade. However, it went on to say that the US would only trade with Britain or France if either gave up their respective blockade. So if England relaxed its laws, then the United States would not trade with France, while if France reopened trade with the United States, then America would not trade with England. It was then that Napoleon saw his chance. He pretended to cooperate with America, so America agreed to halt all trade to England. In the coming months, America tried to work out a deal with England despite its original plan, but these attempts met with little success, and the situation with England grew more and more frustrating. This was certainly a raising of the stakes, almost a way of using your own trade as a weapon, but this was reflected in the understanding that by 1810 the war was entering a new phase. The nations were tiring of the war, and Napoleon's consistent efforts to undermine the combinations of allies which London concocted meant that the possibility of easing the economic burdens of British life would certainly have been looked into with greater interest than before, as the new US President James Madison hoped. Despite the grounds for optimism, though, America remained unable to force the issue with Britain, even while impressment continued to frustrate James Madison. A first-hand account written by James Durand, an American seaman pressed into the British Navy in July 1809, gives a harrowing impression of the whole ordeal. With much abuse, they hauled me out of my bed, not suffering me to put on anything but my undergarments. In their miserable condition, I was taken aboard their ship, unaware that I would be detained there for seven years. Had I known my destiny that night, I would almost certainly have committed the horrific crime of self-murder. The new American government, headed by James Madison, had been hounded by the cries of the aforementioned Warhawks, who were mainly young Southern politicians who had little grasp of America's true military situation, and who argued for war with Britain on the grounds that such a conflict was a necessity, and that it was America's honour and prestige that was on the line. Madison knew of their argument, and it would eventually overtake him, but he also knew of the divisions in America itself. Despite what my previous sources may have maintained, the United States was altogether not committed to war with Britain. The common man, perhaps, may have seen the war as a patriotic duty or a continuation of the previous effort, but those with businesses to run or with goods to import, or even those that could view the world's situation realistically, would surely have noted the disparities in power between the two nations. Money was a big factor. In some of the trading or coastal towns, for example, where commerce and income had been negatively affected by first the British and then the American policies, the question of how bad it would get if both were actually to go to war loomed large in the mind of any American living in those areas. The states within the region of New England especially possessed an opinion which contrasted sharply with the prouder view of the South. New Englanders were adamant that America would not only lose out in any war with Britain, but that their merchant and commercial enterprises would suffer as a result. James A. Jealous's book, A Ruinous and Unhappy War, New England and the War of 1812, is a vital perspective that's often forgotten in early 19th century America.
Ellis's book tells the story of the hardships faced by the New England region in the coming war and how relentlessly its inhabitants protested the pursuit of it. In the preface of the book, he writes, The War of 1812 was the first war declared by America, and by no means the last war prosecuted over the objections of a sizable portion of the American citizenry. The most persistent, organised and vociferous opposition arose from that oldest region of the country, New England. Commercial, religious and political interests in the region contested the war on multiple grounds, but rested their case on a foundation of states' rights. The Federalists, the minority political party in the country, controlled much of New England and led the contrariness and contention. In more specific states, like Massachusetts, a ballad began to gain a measure of popularity. It went, Our ships, all in motion, once widened the ocean. They sailed and returned with a cargo. Now doomed to decay, they have fallen prey to Jefferson worms and embargo. As if this catchy jingle wasn't bad enough for the American citizen, Britain continued to invest its energies in the creation of a Native American state, one which would hopefully block the expansion of American settlers and serve as a buffer between British Canada and North America. The plan centred on rallying the support of the Native American tribes and getting them to act in Britain's best interests. This was easy to do so long as the Native Americans viewed the Americans with such hostility. Americans would settle within what was officially Native American territory in the area composing the modern-day states of Ohio, Indiana and Michigan, the so-called Northwest Territory. Americans, of course, blamed Britain for supplying the Native Americans with arms, while the Native Americans mounted raids and stole from border areas that the Americans had been warned to steer clear of. The Native American tribes had a leader in the form of a Shawnee tribesman called Tecumseh, who led the Iroquois Confederacy for a time. The Iroquois Confederacy, also called the Iroquois Confederacy, also called the Iroquois, but don't correct me because there's loads of ways to say it, okay, was a grouping of five distinct tribes in the Northwest that cooperated internally to promote peace and trade, but who often acted independently when dealing with external powers. It was Tecumseh's responsibility to hold the Native American tribes in the Iroquois Confederacy together, and as his notoriety grew, he began to ask for tribes further down south to join too. The Confederacy eventually began to look more like a state all unto itself, and that was exactly what the Americans had feared. If the Iroquois were allowed to establish a nation, then the planned American expansion would be halted. Furthermore, the British were strongly suspected to have played a role in the increase of their power in the region of the Northwest. The American Warhawks pointed to this, on top of the existing problems of impressment and trade restrictions, as provocations that provided the cause for war. If the Iroquois could be wiped out in the process, then that would be an added bonus. Whether the Iroquois was just the first steps towards the annexation of Canada is debatable. Though this gives us another opportunity to address that issue. Let's look first at Clifford Egan in his book, The Origins of the War of 1812, Three Decades of Historical Writing, where he writes that Almost all accounts of the 1811-12 period have stressed the influence of a youthful band denominated Warhawks on Madison's policy. According to the standard picture, these men were a rather wild and exuberant group enraged by Britain's maritime policies, certain that the British were encouraging the Indians and convinced that Canada would be an easy conquest and a choice addition to the natural domain. Like all stereotypes, there is some truth in this tableau, however inaccuracies predominate. 
Reginald Horseman, in his book, The War of 1812, that we encountered in the last episode, offered his two cents on America's view on Canada when he wrote, The idea of conquering Canada had been present since at least 1807, as a means of forcing England to change her policy at sea. The conquest of Canada was primarily a means of waging war, not a reason for starting it. John Stagg, in his book, Mr. Madison's War, Politics, Diplomacy and Warfare in the Early American Republic, notes another view which stated what would happen if the war had been an altogether successful one for America. He wrote, Had the War of 1812 been a successful military venture, the Madison administration would have been reluctant to return occupied Canadian territory to the enemy. Not to roll out a load of historians on the issue of Canada, but because I found the issue so fascinating, I have a few more. Walter Nugent, in his book Habits of Empire, A History of American Expansionism, wrote on the American impetus for war when he said, Expansion was not the only American objective, indeed, not the immediate one, but it was an objective. Rodney Carlyle and Geoffrey Golson also described the attitude of America with a term you might recognise when they wrote their book, Manifest Destiny and the Expansion of America. They said, Americans harboured manifest destiny ideas of Canadian annexation throughout the 19th century. Finally, I promise this is the last one, Julius Pratt in his book, Expansionists of 1812, wrote of the plans of American statesmen which stretched far into the future. Writing, the American belief that the United States would one day annex Canada had a continuous existence from the early days of the War of Independence to the War of 1812 and was a factor of primary importance for bringing on the war. So, why was I so determined to make this one of the best researched episodes in When Diplomacy Fails history, both five years ago and then repeating them now? Well, just like five years ago, I wanted to show you now that the issue wasn't as black and white as you might think. I also found it interesting that the War of 1812 is called the Forgotten War, and yet it's so easy to find all these sources on it. It makes you wonder exactly what people are being taught. I guess you just have to go out and find the information yourself. Good thing I'm doing this podcast then. Even today, guys, historians are divided as to what the true motivations of Americans were with regards to Canada, and those looking for a reason for the War of 1812 will be hard-pressed to find a more glaring eyesore in the American consciousness than the American-Canadian border, just as surely as that theatre of war would become the most active. It's not all about the burning of Washington, folks, but at the same time it is very difficult to judge whether the American warmongering or reckless policies existed because America wanted a war, or because the desire was inherently there to annex Canada. It's important to remember who we're talking about here. I would almost argue that we shouldn't be surprised that America and Britain were at each other's throats 30 years after the war for their independence had been fought. Britain was still smarting from its loss of the 13 colonies, while America still resented Britain's refusal to leave it well enough alone. The relationship... Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Between colony and master is what makes the war so fascinating, in my opinion. And it's also what makes the whole Canadian aspect so fascinating, too. If I may be so bold, it's a situation comparable to one closer to home. Oh dear, here come the controversies. The resentment that the American Warhawks feel at the British Dominion over Canada, land which borders their newly independent country, was the same resentment felt by Irish Republicans a hundred years later when the Irish Free State achieved its measured form of independence in 1922, only to be made all too aware of the state of Northern Ireland just a few miles up the road, still flying the Union Jack. Before you come after me with pitchforks, listen to the 1916 Rising Centenary special I did on Settle Down. The nature of each conflict obviously is different, and please don't take this rough comparison as a definition of the nature of the Northern Ireland situation. I just wanted to draw some parallels between the two former colonies, but look at it this way. If Ireland was to start a war in the 1940s, for example, based on restrictions to trade and the British impressment of Irish men into the Royal Navy, will we look back on it and say, unanimously, hmm, I think the Irish wanted the war so they could take Northern Ireland. Well, no, of course we wouldn't. We'd all disagree in one form of another, and we'd base our opinions on the opinions of other historians who have thoroughly examined the issue, only to come to the conclusion that both sides make a fair point and agree to disagree. I hope you understand what I'm saying, and I hope you get the point of all of this. Basically, it's just a roundabout but unique way of saying that it's impossible to know for sure. If America declared war on the 18th of June, 1812, because I wanted to annex Canada into the American sphere, or because Canada was simply seen as a bonus. Whatever the motivation behind the war, 1810 and 11 were difficult enough years for Anglo-American diplomacy, and the tension began to boil to unbearable levels, as slights committed by Britain that were often never even thought about twice in London caused uproar in Washington. Madison was at pains to follow the lead of Jefferson, but the list of grievances grew as the months passed, and Britain became less considerate and far cooler, almost condescending in her dealings with America. Madison worried at the whole situation making him look weak, and he asked his military advisers for their two cents. Practically all assured him that the American militias could race into Canada and overwhelm the 6,000 British garrisoning there, forcing Britain to the bargaining table and hopefully beginning a new era of negotiations with London thereafter. A short, sharp war, in other words. That old myth which would die such an awful and repeated death over the next two centuries appealed to Madison, and he presented a list of the British insults to Congress on the 1st of June, 1812. Less than three weeks later, Madison had his declaration of war and sent the orders out to raise militias and open the arsenals. The race was on to land a decisive blow while the American forces still possessed the element of surprise. 
For the second and final time, Britain was in a state of war with America. The road to war had been full of complicated processes and needless slights, and many would be forgiven today for asking why the war happened at all. But Britain, weary from its war in Europe, accepted the new conflict with a heavy sense of duty and, turning its ships, as many as it could spare, towards its former colony, took part in one of the most eventful side notes of the Napoleonic Wars. Although the war seemed to have been building for many months by the time it broke out, neither America or Britain seemed completely prepared for it when it did. Britain was fully engaged in the Peninsular War, while its navy blockaded the French and Allied coast, and America's navy, while mobilising and moving towards the Canadian border, made up but one part of the war. The British had ships in short supply thanks to the war in Europe, and American ships particularly in the north were preparing themselves for attacks on British shipping that the British were so vulnerable to. But the American fleet contained not one single ship of the line, since frigates, sloops and smaller cannon boats made up the American fleet, which was mainly used to police and guard the merchant fleet. From the start, British planners knew they would have to fight the war defensively, at least until the threat from Napoleon was less pronounced. Napoleon had begun his invasion of Russia by the time all of Britain's possessions in Canada were aware of the American Declaration, and this at least reduced the pressure in Iberia on the British, Spanish and Portuguese soldiers serving there, but it didn't mean that Britain was out of the woods yet. Rather than viewing the Russian invasion as the end of Napoleon, we should remember that Napoleon was fully expected to triumph in Russia and turn whatever remained of his grand army towards Britain once more. Once this happened, Britain knew that the channel would have to be protected at all costs to stop Napoleon launching yet another invasion of the island. British planners were looking far ahead to 1813, and they expected that by then Napoleon would be more dangerous than ever with a Russian vassal and yet more victories under his belt. Because of this, many British policymakers were reluctant to commit resources towards the American war. Of course, we know now that the forces of Napoleon would meet their shattering end in Russia's frozen wastes, thus enabling Britain to prosecute the war in America more aggressively. It's a scenario which contains no shortages of what-ifs. Had Russia folded or had Napoleon remained an active threat, Canada's history may have been very different indeed. While Britain was attempting to perfect that age-old art of multitasking, something which I still haven't managed to get right in my life, but America was having a pretty hard time too. The orders to expand the army from 15 to 35,000 men met with harsh protests in New England, proving to Madison that the war he believed America now had to fight was not as popular as he had initially hoped. While the army could be supported by the militias, service in both was seen as a nuisance by the turn of the 19th century. In contrast to the romantic idea created by the revolution, pay was badly organised, conditions were poor, and the officers still possessed the tough and outdated attitudes towards the men that drove recruits off the wall. Americans began to see that the British had increased their support of the Native American tribes in the Northeast Territory, with some American sources even claiming that British Canadians rode with the Native American cavalry. Britain was clearly treating the theatre of war as perhaps its best chance to pin American forces down, while its navy delivered the knockout blow. Eugene Waite explains the aims of Tsar Alexander of Russia at this time, when his and Napoleon's states seemed to be on a collision course. He wrote, Alexander I of Russia was alarmed when diplomatic relations with America began to fade in 1811. 
They wanted a strong alliance with Britain and did not want Britain and America to go to war. They did their best to prevent it in St. Petersburg, but this was to be to no avail. The war began neither with Russia as an enemy of America, nor with America as an ally of France. It wasn't a two-on-two battle, but a series of unfortunate events that had left everyone frustrated. The opening battles were fought mainly with Americans on the attack along the border with Canada, as London scrambled to mount some kind of defensive strategy. Washington had planned a three-pronged invasion, first into the northwest, where an army would cross the Detroit River into Upper Canada, and hopefully seize Fort Malden on the opposite bank of Lake Erie. The second force would head over the border of the western New York state and capture Forts George and Erie along the coast of the lake, while the final thrust would go up northward along the shores of Lake Champlain and take Montreal. If you can't picture that in your head, don't worry. All you need to know is that it was a bold plan, and it was hoped that its success would guarantee the defeat of both the British and Canada, and the Indians in their Northwest Territory state. In the end, only one of these objectives was fully achieved, though, as the Iroquois Confederacy would suffer subsequent defeats to the Americans, and ending their collective dream of a unified state in the process. In the meantime, the British, although they were defeated in the Battle of Lake Erie on the 10th of September, 1813, which in itself was an embarrassing, shocking loss for the British and all but guaranteed the end of the Native American state, they were able to beat back subsequent invasions of Canada and focus their attention more completely on the American War once Napoleon abdicated in mid-1814 and we all know what happened then. America had conducted the war quite recklessly in its marches overland. Private property had been stolen or destroyed and civilians were placed in danger when their houses were destroyed and they were exposed to the elements. These actions outraged the British and, newly freed by the absence of Napoleon, they planned to launch an invasion of the American continent proper. Initially three targets were suggested, Philadelphia, Washington and Baltimore. Attacks by sea had been launched before against New Orleans and Virginia, but British planners had instructed Vice Admiral Sir Alexander Cochrane, Commander-in-Chief of the Royal Navy's North American and West Indies Station, to launch a strong or forceful attack so as to injure the American settlements and reduce the morality of their forces. Washington was eventually labelled as the definitive target due to the obvious implications of a British military venture there. In what became known as the greatest disgrace ever dealt to American arms, the British landed 2,500 soldiers under the command of Major General Robert Ross at Benedict Maryland on the 19th of August 1814. His forces routed the smaller American force there in the Battle of Bladensburg on the 24th of August, and just like that, the door to America's capital was left wide open. The Senate, House of Representatives and Library of Congress were destroyed in what was an undeniably successful venture for the British, and an absolutely crushing experience for the Americans. For Madison, seeing his capital burned as he fled from the Battle of Bladensburg was a sight more painful and harrowing than death itself, and it would serve as the major impetus for seeking peace a few months later. The psychological impact of the burning of Washington is an event many Americans likely wish to have expunged from the historical record. Ostensibly, it had been justified by the British policy line because of the damage that American arms had inflicted on Canadian settlements. One newspaper, the Annual Register, claimed that the burning brought a heavy censor on the British character. 
While the incident was condemned by most of the heads of Europe, a somewhat awkward fact considering that all were present in Vienna at the time. It was the first and last time a foreign power would ever march on American soil, and the message it sent to American statesmen was one of regret. But the outcome of the war was not so simple, because as both sides sat down to treat in the early hours of Christmas Eve 1814, the Treaty of Ghent was signed between the two, and when it was ratified by Britain and the United States in February, the War of 1812 came to its official end on the 17th of February 1815. Almost no territorial exchanges had been made, and both sides agreed to respect the other's boundaries. Nothing significant had been changed, achieved, or lost by either side, and for all intents and purposes, the war quickly became a forgotten chapter of perhaps the most complicated relationship in the English-speaking world. It was, as C. Northcote Parkinson put it when writing in the 1930s, a war which began over nothing, proved nothing, and settled nothing. It is an episode of history which most people would prefer to forget. Certainly today there's little evidence that either Britain or America fought each other after the initial revolution, and perhaps few people actually know that they did. In spite of all the sources I was able to gather for you guys, the War of 1812 is often referred to as the Forgotten War. A hundred years later, after the war took place, America would be a completely different country, and it would be a European war which would once again draw the attention of America. This time not as Britain's enemy though, but as its valuable ally. When Britain went on to form an empire across the world, and as it launched itself into the Victorian age and the Industrial Revolution, America would turn in on itself. Drawing inspiration from its conduct during the war, the Star-Spangled Banner soon became its unofficial theme song, and the old history of war with Britain was relegated to the background in favour of the grander ambitions of continental expansion. And we all know where that led. So that's the end of the episode for today, folks. Please join me and Sean in a talk episode which is sourced from the original but which I have somewhat remastered and then included in this series because of my OCD-like tendencies. You know me, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Remember, you guys can support this podcast anywhere you like, but the best place to do so is to go to wdfpodcast.com. Got loads of merchandise just waiting for you guys to go and track it down. So become a patron of When Diplomacy Fails, and it could all be yours, from a pen, to a mug, to a badge, to a magnet, to a t-shirt, to a book. It's all waiting for you. But for now, thanks for listening. My name is Zach, and I'll see you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.